0: You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org students. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com/sale. That's hello t e n d.com/sale and book your free consult today.
1: You must
2: Welcome
0: to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secrets and or forgotten stories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another episode in our ongoing series, Fake News, Fact-Checking, Hollywood Babylon.
1: The great films of the silent years.
3: This isn't news. This is totally unfounded gossip.
1: It's a long way from Hollywood. Criticized for dealing too frankly with such themes as sex and nudity. Hollywood Babylon.
0: Today's episode deals with a filmmaker whose movies have been almost totally forgotten, but whose death has continued to fascinate. Here is this week's special guest, reading the version of the story printed in Hollywood Babylon.
3: Just one headline appeared. Movie producer shot on Hearst Yacht. This story, in the Los Angeles Times, was yanked in later editions. Something was going on. A gigantic cover-up. The cream of Hollywood's charmed circle received Hearst's invitation to a cruise on his yacht, the Oneida scheduled to depart November 15th, 1924, for a jaunt to San Diego. The occasion was celebrating the 43rd birthday of Thomas H. Ince, a pioneer producer-director, father of the Western. Hearst was in the middle of negotiations with Ince to use his Culver City studio as a base for his production company. Marion Davies was collected on the set of Xander the Great at United Artists by two other guests, Charlie Chaplin and a Hearst movie columnist from New York, Luella O. Parsons, on her first visit to Hollywood. They all drove down together to San Pedro. The Oneida took to sea with a cargo of celebrities, a jazz band, a stock of vintage champagne, and 27-year-old Marion Davies and 62-year-old Big Daddy as hostess and host. The birthday party on board is said to have been great fun, up to a point. Beyond that point, the Oneida sailed straight into a fog bank of conflicting stories. The official version, as released by Hearst House, couldn't be more simple. Poor Tom Ince, gluttered himself with rich Hearstian hospitality at his Scorpio birthday party and died of acute indigestion. Unfortunately for Hearst, witnesses had seen Ince board the yacht at San Diego. Even more regrettable, Kono, chaplain's secretary, saw a bullet hole in Ince's head as he was carried off the Oneida. Acute indigestion? Hurst was also uncommonly jealous of other men's attentions to Marion. Detectives had kept him informed of her dalliance with Chaplin during his absence. Chaplin had been invited so that Hurst could observe his comportment with Marion. It is believed that during the birthday party, Hurst noticed that Marion and Charlie had slipped off together and were later discovered by Hearst in Flagrante on the lower deck. In her famous stutter, Marion let out a prophetic scream, Murder, which brought the other guests running as Hearst ran for his revolver. In the ensuing confusion, Ince, not Chaplin, dropped a bullet in his brain. Some thought it no coincidence that Luella Parsons was awarded a lifetime contract with Hearst soon after this incident, with her syndication expanded. It was rumored she had seen it all. Luella soon felt obliged to do a little covering up of her own and claimed she had been in New York at the time. The only inconvenience was that Marion in Vera Burnett, clearly recalled seeing Luella with Davies and Chaplin at the studio, ready for departure. Vera valued her job and decided not to insist upon it. The Hearst Davies diarchy wrote out the scandal unscathed. But as D.W. Griffith remarked in later years, all you have to do to make Hearst turn white as a ghost is mention Ince's name. There's plenty wrong there, but Hearst is too big to touch. Hearst discreetly provided Ince's widow Nell with a trust fund. The depression wiped out the fund and Nell finished her days as a taxi driver.
0: The version of Ince's death put forward in Hollywood Babylon has transcended the cult classic book, forming the basis for both a play and a film called The Cat's Meow. In the film, directed by Peter Bogdanovich and starring Kirsten Dunst as Marion Davies and Carrie Elways as Ince, the conspiracy theory is dramatized, and seductively so, into a kind of Hollywood version of The Great Gatsby, in which the rich and powerful can lie, cheat, and kill with impunity, and the relatively innocent bystanders are induced into complicit silence. Today, we will examine the facts of Thomas Ince's death, and we'll also do something that none of the accounts that focus on the circumstances of his demise have much time for. We'll talk about his life and his work, and the many ways in which Ince's work as a director and a producer established conventions and innovated what was possible in early Hollywood. While D.W. Griffith gets all the credit for making the feature film that cemented the film industry as an industry, Ince did just as much, if not more, to standardize filmmaking practice in ways that ensured profitability, while also practicing a kind of inclusion that would seem progressive even today. Join us, won't you, for the story of Thomas Ince. Thomas Ince traveled the world as a theatrical actor and acting teacher until 1910, when, like so many others of his generation, poverty motivated him to hold his nose and seek work at a movie studio. For Ince, the studio was the independent motion picture company in New York, where he worked as a stock actor. He was inspired by what he termed the pliancy of the motion picture medium, and he decided to transition from acting to making movies. By the time Ince convinced IMP's president, Carl Lemly to give him a shot at directing, Mary Pickford had moved over to that studio from Biograph, and Ince was assigned as her director. In 1911, Ince directed Mary and her husband, Owen Moore, as a married couple in a film called The Dream, on which Pickford was credited as the writer of the scenario. A few months into his directing career, Ince accepted an offer to move to Los Angeles, where he would be paid $150 a week, almost triple his salary in New York. Still, the cross-country trip was such a huge money-suck that Ince's wife, Eleanor, was forced to pawn her wedding ring in order to pay the lease on a house on Franklin Avenue. Now out West, Ince was introduced to the making of Western movies. Contrary to Anger's description of Ince as the father of the Western, which is a common conception, by the time Ince arrived in Los Angeles, Westerns already constituted a quarter of the films being produced in America. Ince didn't invent the genre, but he took a liking to it quickly, in part because he was so inspired by the locations available in Southern California. In an effort to add some authentic personality to the authentic settings that were available in the Santa Monica Mountains, Ince convinced his bosses to hire the Miller Brothers 101 Ranch, Wild West Show, a company consisting of dozens of cowboys and Native Americans turned showpersons. These performers had their own horses, stagecoaches, teepees, and virtually all manner of props and animals that Ince would need to stage Western films. The Native Americans in the show consisted of a tribe of 50 Sioux. It would have been easier for Ince to cast white people as Indians, as many other producers did, but he was willing to do it the harder way in the name of authenticity. He made sure the natives had open lines of communication with him, even though most members of the tribe didn't speak English and Ince didn't speak Sioux. And when the tribe asked for a raise, Ince gave it to them. The cost of employing the Wild West show increased the overhead for each of Ince's films, and he became convinced that the way to justify higher overhead and make higher profits was to focus on making fewer, longer, higher quality films. This was in 1912, three years before the birth of a nation, and Ince's point of view was not popular. But he kept at it, and when War on the Plains, a western starring a Sioux named William Eagleshirt, proved to be a massive success, Ince was allowed to concentrate from then on, on two and three real-length movies. He also took control of 18,000 acres of land in the foothills around what is now the intersection of Sunset Boulevard and Pacific Coast Highway and he began building out the facilities for shooting. Ince's use of this land would visually distinguish his westerns from those made by his competitors, and the area became known as Inceville. Later, Ince would break from competitors who painted white American actors in yellow face to play Asian characters by signing two Japanese performers, Suru Aoki And Sesu Hayakawa. Aoki and Hayakawa would become the first Asian stars in Hollywood movies. They both starred in Wrath of the Gods, produced by Ince and directed by Reginald Barker. Wrath of the Gods depicted a romance between a young Japanese woman and a Christian American sailor, and while the film condoned an interracial relationship that would be considered verboten on screen just a few years later, It also painted Japanese faith traditions as being both outdated and inferior to a belief in Jesus. Hayakawa was paired with a white actress, Gladys Brockwell, in another Ince production, The Typhoon, in which he played a Japanese spy who lashes out at his white lover and then kills himself in shame. Hayakawa and Aoki married and continued to star in films together for Ince. But the actor later turned against pictures like Wrath of the Gods and The Typhoon, which were not popular amongst Japanese Americans or in Japan, saying the roles he was made to play were, quote, false and give people a wrong idea of us. Ince thought it was good business to cast Japanese actors as Japanese characters, and this in itself was progressive for its time and place, but he was still ultimately a white man collaborating primarily with other white men to make movies primarily enjoyed by white audiences. In another complication of the producer's stated interest in authenticity, Ince's signature was what became known as the Ince Punch, a climactic scene that allowed him to parallel the themes of his story in thrilling action. This would often involve the depiction of a natural phenomenon, like a storm or a fire, which brings on a life-or-death encounter that forces his characters to show who they were and what they wanted. The drama might be contrived, and of course often faked through movie magic, but Ince was insistent that such scenes have at their core something universally human. The theme or keynote of the story must be real, he once wrote. It must be based on a fundamental principle of life, something which every man and woman knows in common with his neighbor, some underlying basis of human existence which touches the lives of the laborer or the capitalist, the shop girl or the queen. The theme must be a universal language, love, greed, sacrifice, fear, or any emotion which is generally known.
1: This episode is brought to you by MUBI, a curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. From iconic directors to emerging auteurs, there is always something new to discover. With MUBI, each and every film is hand-selected, so you can explore incredible movies, streaming anytime, anywhere. This month in U.S. theaters, MUBI is releasing a new documentary from Academy Award winner Kevin MacDonald, High and Low, John Galliano. It's charting the rise and fall story of the fashion designer John Galliano, who was one of the most successful names in couture until his career abruptly ended in 2011. Featuring conversations with Naomi Campbell, Kate Moss, Penelope Cruz, Charlize Theron, Anna Wintour, and more. High and low, John Galliano is coming to select theaters across the U.S. on March 8th. For showtimes and tickets, visit movie.com slash high and low. And to stream the best of cinema, you can try movie free for 30 days at Movie.com slash YMRT. That's M-U-B-I.com slash YMRT. For a whole month of great cinema for free.
0: In the teens, the credit producer wasn't often used. And the role had not really been codified. Ince is sometimes derided for taking credit for work he didn't do, putting his name on films directed by other people in a more prominent position, or instead of, the name of the actual director. But all reports suggest Ince put his fingerprints on his productions. He had half a dozen directors working under him at any given time, Every day, he'd look at what each director had shot and make notes and suggestions. In the editing room, he'd often write and rewrite titles, sometimes changing a film's story and meaning significantly between shooting and release. While others working on his scale, such as D.W. Griffith, basically eschewed preparing a document comparable to what we would now think of as a traditional script or even shot list, As he drifted away from directing every movie himself and towards overseeing several other directors as a producer, Ince was seeking ways to streamline production, and he looked to the manufacturing assembly line for inspiration. Sometimes, Ince would stage one battle or crowd scene and allow multiple directors to film their own versions of it for use in their own movies. In order to coordinate all of this, Ince made it standard that his productions would not proceed until a script was prepared numbering each scene and describing the camera position needed. This was an innovation which eventually became standard. Ince is known as a maker of Westerns in part because the films he produced starring William S. Hart achieved international acclaim. But Ince's production of Westerns actually fell off after 1914, when the Wild West Company broke ties with him and left Hollywood. And from then on, the bulk of Ince's output consisted of melodramas. Many of these films dealt with social issues, such as poverty and the immigrant experience. At roughly the same time that Griffith was promoting pre-Civil War nostalgia with The Birth of a Nation, Ince was making The Italian, a drama dealing empathetically with an Italian immigrant struggle to raise a family in a corrupt American city. The Italian, which starred non-Italian George Babon in the title role, is now remembered as a highlight of Ince's career, along with Civilization, an Ince-directed film of the same year, more explicitly designed to play on the same field as Birth of a Nation. Civilization was also a war epic, this one about a fictional European conflict and the Christians who argue against it. Ince's film was more abstract than Griffith's in that it couldn't ask viewers to relate to a real conflict or their own experience. As a result, Civilization grossed eight times what it had cost to produce, but its cultural impact, then and now, was dwarfed. By Griffith's bloated minstrel show. After the Birth of a Nation's massive success, Griffith's financiers made the deal that would form Triangle, a distribution effort which would pay Ince, Griffith, and Max Sennett to produce films for Triangle to release. Ince and Griffith's pioneering of longer films was vindicated by Triangle's release strategy which aimed to offer theaters blocks of content containing two long features, one each produced by Griffith and Ince, and a two-reel comedy from Sennett. Triangle asked theaters to hold these dense, high-quality packages for a full week, rather than change the program every day or two, as was then-standard. Now needing to produce one five-real feature every week, Ince dispensed with Inceville, which had been damaged by a fire in January 1915, and added a studio lot in Culver City to his empire. At Ince's direction, the facade of the studio consisted of Greek-style columns, columns which still today line Washington Boulevard, on the land that later became the MGM lot and is now Sony Studios. But Triangle didn't last long. The double feature plus a comedy package didn't work because general audiences weren't sophisticated enough for it yet and weren't willing or able to pay the high prices that the high quality of fare demanded. As the studio began to crumble, there were lawsuits and low blows, and Ince walked away determined to hold on to his independence in an industry that was beginning to be marked by consolidation. This meant that, over the next few years, he would try all kinds of things to try to hold on to his power and his assets. Holding on to the Culver City land when Triangle dissolved, Ince invested in expanding and updating his studio lot so that other independent filmmakers could pay him to shoot there. When Griffith, Chaplin, Pickford, and Fairbanks got together and formed United Artists in 1919, Ince banded with directors Alan Dwan, Marshall Nealon, and others to form an entity called Associated Producers, with an opposite mission—not to make art, but to feed the demands of the market— Accordingly, these producers would resist signing contract players for whom they'd have to find appropriate material, and instead focused on generating material with box office promise and hiring large ensemble casts made up of whomever they could get to work freelance. This practice made Ince's own name more important, and going forward, his movies would be sold as a Thomas H. Ince special production. But these special productions were subject to the ebbs and flows of the market more than typical studio product. And not only did Ince begin relying on banks for funding, but he also created a business called Cinema Finance Corporation, which bridged filmmakers and California-based banks, allowing local financiers to step in when skittish Wall Street was in retreat. Meanwhile, associate producers was essentially acquired by First National, the studio that would, by the end of the decade, become Warner Brothers. Ince's association with First National was contentious and difficult. Ince resisted being treated as an employee and was determined to maintain control of his productions and his property but he was also in constant need of money to cover his payroll and overhead, and the arrangement with First National forced him to divide profits, which were already subject to First National's decisions and, in Ince's mind, missteps in distribution. As he struggled just to hold on to his little piece of the movie-making world, he cautioned the rest of the industry against allowing a few big companies to swallow all the little ones and monopolize the production, distribution, and exhibition of movies. But by the early 1920s, that was exactly what was happening. One of Ince's last acts as a progressive filmmaker was producing Her Reputation, a takedown of yellow journalism through the story of a young woman who has her reputation sullied, unfairly, by a scoop-hungry reporter. The film featured a misogynistic newspaper tycoon who hides behind the free market to justify printing distortions and lies that ruin lives. In the Ince style, there are floods, forest fires, and romance. And in the end, the tycoon does the right thing. Her reputation was perceived to be, as one review put it, propaganda against the newspaper profession. But while it was in release, Ince was beginning negotiations with a newspaper man who, on, well, paper, seemed very much like the yellow journalism peddling magnet in the movie. Ince was hoping this newspaper tycoon would also do the right thing. But he didn't get a chance.
4: Figure Lending, LLC, DBA Figure. Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. By
0: 1923, Thomas Ince was majorly overextended, just trying to make his production quotas and keep all of his various enterprises afloat. He was under doctor's orders to moderate his diet, and he was evidently concerned enough about his overall stress level that he had been planning on taking some time off after the first of the year in order to decompress. But Ince had not made his health problems public because his work depended on him being able to get bank loans, which depended on banks believing he was a safe investment and not a fragile man who might die before returning dividends to his investors. In an industry in which a few companies were rapidly consolidating all the power through vertical integration, Ince was determined to remain independent against all odds. He couldn't jeopardize his ability to borrow money. Ince sought an influx of cash from what might have seemed like an unlikely source given the apparent point of view of her reputation. In the late fall of 1924, he began talks with William Randolph Hearst, who had long been funding a production company, Cosmopolitan Pictures, to ensure a constant stream of starring vehicles for his mistress, actress Marion Davies. Hearst had a distribution agreement with Goldwyn Studios, which was in the process of merging with Metro Pictures to become the Louis B. Mayer-headed MGM. Though Hearst had his own shooting facilities in New York, he didn't have his own studio in Los Angeles. Hearst liked to keep full control of the Marion Davies movies. He was known to pull a film out of release, pay for reshoots, and then re-release a new cut, And he wasn't keen about the notion that Mayer and the other executives at the new MGM might interfere should Cosmopolitan shoot their movies there. Ince still owned his studio facilities in Culver City, and Hearst thought it sounded like not only a convenient place to shoot, but he also knew that Ince's whole thing was letting independent producers stay independent. Hurst had toyed with joining Associated Producers two years earlier, but in 1924, he was ready to pull the trigger. Hurst and Ince had worked out the bare outlines of a deal, but the idea was that they would finalize the agreement on Hurst's yacht. The plan was to fet Ince for his birthday on Friday night, and then conduct business on Saturday. As it turned out, Ince was unable to sail with the rest of the party on Friday, as he had to attend a preview of his film The Mirage. Instead, he took the train to San Diego and boarded the boat there on Saturday. In Hollywood Babylon, anger suggests this was suspicious somehow, but it really was not. Yes, Ince missed dinner on Friday nights but he definitely began indulging himself as soon as he boarded the yacht on Saturday. Before Ince's birthday celebration took place on Saturday night, Ince snacked on salted almonds, a no-no for his doctor-prescribed heart-healthy diet. He was given toasts at dinner, and writer Eleanor Glynn, one of the guests, encouraged him to drink champagne telling Ince that toasting in water was bad luck. Ince woke in the middle of the night in what he thought was gastric distress. His moans awoke a number of the passengers on the yacht, including Daniel Goodman. Goodman was an M.D., but he had more recently been working as the manager of Hearst's movie business. Goodman decided to help Ince off the boat, To get medical attention, he either hailed a passing water taxi or fired up a motorboat kept on the yacht and accompanied Ince to the train station in San Diego. The idea was that Ince would take the two hour ride to Los Angeles and see a doctor there. None of the reports specify what time this was happening or how long they would have had to wait for a train in the middle of the night. But in any case, on board the train, Ince began showing symptoms of a heart attack. He had had these symptoms before. Goodman thought it best that Ince disembark at Del Mar, about a quarter of the way from San Diego to Los Angeles. There, Goodman took Ince to a hotel and called Ince's wife Eleanor and had her and a doctor meet them there. Ince told the doctor that he had drunk, quote, "...considerable liquor on the boat." Then Eleanor took Ince home to rest. In the wee hours of September 19th, three days after the onset of his sickness, Thomas Ince suffered a massive heart attack. Everyone in Hollywood knew that Thomas Ince was a workaholic but few knew that he had been suffering from severe ulcers and chest pains. The stress of some manner of indigestion and or alcohol poisoning had aggravated his already weak heart, and at the age of 44, he died. The only thing that seems suspicious to me about this story from the vantage of the future is that Ince was thought to be suffering a heart attack and yet never taken to a hospital. But Ince's fear of having to admit to his having consumed a lot of bootleg liquor at a party hosted by a very powerful man might have kept him from wanting to enter such an institution. There is no way to know if the Los Angeles Times headline which Anger claims was printed and then retracted, stating that Ince had been shot— really ever existed. But that story had become a pervasive urban legend by just a few years later. The legend, as printed in Hollywood Babylon, was that Hearst meant to shoot Charlie Chaplin, but in the dark, mistook the stocky Ince for the slim little tramp. This rumor has so calcified that, as Ince's biographer notes, if Hearst enacted a cover-up of the real cause of Ince's death, it was the worst cover-up of all time. If a truly all-powerful newspaper baron with access to plenty of fuck-you money really wanted to quiet the story that he had shot a man on his yachts, wouldn't he have been able to do a better job of it? Hearst had helped to invent yellow journalism. He had knowingly published false stories in his newspapers for all kinds of reasons. His rivals were eager for opportunities to attack him. The gossip surrounding Ince's death on Hearst's yacht gave them something to sink their teeth into. And yet, rival papers like the Los Angeles Times printed stories that supported the official version of Ince's death, such as that paper's coverage of the funeral which noted that mourners observed the dead man in an open casket and did not note a gunshot wound to the head. One theory suggests Hearst's cover-up was thwarted by Tarashi Kono, Chaplin's Japanese butler, who allegedly saw Ince being carried off the yacht with a bullet hole in his head and then gossiped about it amongst all the other Japanese servants who worked for Hollywood people in the 1920s. Despite the icky air of racism and classism that hangs around this accusation, the fact that Ince was one of the few producers who employed Japanese actors instead of casting white actors in yellowface gave the claim a kind of ironic credibility, as if the Japanese domestic workers of Los Angeles
2: were determined to avenge Ince's murder. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's Lifetime Membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Another aspect of the supposed cover-up
0: was that Luella Parsons was offered a long-term contract with Hearst in exchange for never printing the truth about Ince's death. Anger claims that Parsons falsely claimed to have been in New York as an alibi. Parsons' biographer says neither the columnist nor Chaplin made the voyage, which spoils every juicy version of the story. Whether she was on the yacht or not is difficult to fact-check but it is apparent that Parsons was under contract to Hearst already. In early 1923, at the invitation of Marion Davies, Luella attended a gala dinner with Davies and Hearst. The plucky writer used this opportunity to tell Hearst that she was dissatisfied with her current newspaper gig and would love to work for him. Over the next few months, The mogul and the writer haggled over her salary, and meanwhile, Parsons used her column at Hearst's rival paper to lavish Hearst with praise. By the end of 1923, Hearst had given in to Parsons' demands, and her long-term contract with him was announced on December 9, 1923, nine months before Ince's death. But just because Ince was almost definitely not shot in the head by Hurst, that didn't mean that Hurst had nothing to hide. In the days between the onset of his illness and his death, Ince confessed to multiple people that he had drank a lot of liquor on board the yachts. A nurse who tended to Ince before his death recalled that he attributed his troubles to quote-unquote bad liquor served to him at the birthday dinner. Hearst himself was not a drinker, but Marion Davies was, and she was well-practiced in stocking his homes and boats with bootleg supplies. If Hearst covered anything up, it was almost definitely that his yacht had been carrying a large amount of bootleg prohibition booze, a batch of which may have poisoned one of his prominent guests. This could be why Hearst allegedly turned white at the mention of Ince. Not only did he feel that he was responsible for hosting the party that may have led to the producer's demise, but if it had been bad liquor that was the culprit, this was an example of how fully enthralled to Davies Hearst was. And, despite her evident genuine affection for him, how little he was able to control her. Finally, what of Hollywood Babylon's claims that Hearst bought Ince's widow's silence with a trust fund that disappeared with the stock market crash, necessitating her employment as a taxi driver? As far as I can tell, Everything about this is basically wrong. Born Eleanor Kershaw, after Ince's death, Mrs. Ince used land that she had bought with her husband on Franklin Boulevard to build the Villa Carlotta apartment building, as well as the Chateau Elysee, a turreted castle designed after a 17th-century palace in France. Eleanor operated the Chateau, as a residential hotel for artists, and tenants included Betty Davis, Errol Flynn, Carol Lombard, and Cary Grant. Far from destitute and definitely not a cab driver, Eleanor was a nearly daily presence on the site at the Chateau, managing the hotel's business and attending the sparkling parties that were held there, up until the point that she sold the building in 1943. The chateau then became a nursing home, and in the 1960s, the Church of Scientology took over residence. They bought the building and the land in 1973 and restored the castle in the early 1990s. It's now the Scientology Celebrity Center, an imposing, hedge-gated mass looming over a micro-neighborhood otherwise mostly frequented, by recent comedy scene transplants from New York. The Villa Carlotta is still there, too. Restored over the past four years, it now functions as a kind of ultra-luxury Airbnb, full of furnished apartments meant to be rented for periods of one or two months at exorbitant rates. Next week, we will tell the story of Hollywood's first quote-unquote ethnic superstar. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our editors are Sam Dingman and Jacob Smith. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. Original music was composed for this season by Evan Viola. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. Special thanks to this week's special guest, Fred Savage, who read From Hollywood Babylon. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website. You must remember There you'll find show notes for every episode, which include links to our sources. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at rememberthispod. And we're on Facebook and Instagram, too. And if you are a fan of this podcast, perhaps you'll also like my new book. It's called Seduction, Sex, Lies, and Stardom in Howard Hughes' Hollywood. It comes out on November 13th, but you can pre-order it now at Amazon.com or HarperCollins.com. We'll be back next week with an all-new tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night.
4: Join one of Loyola University, Maryland's Forensic Science programs today.
0: Celebrate and save at Ashley's Anniversary Sale with Hot Buys, your choice of colors, starting at just 3 dollars Ashley Sleep Mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases and shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval, no minimum purchase required, minimum monthly payment, payment. Payment, tax and delivery may be required. See store for details.